NYC's a mesh. DOD Valentines, drones on Titan, AI nudes, the official Iron Sysadmin poll, light bulbs, and we talk about SSH on tonight's edition of the Iron Sysadmin podcast, episode 63. Now with more OBS. folks, welcome to a slightly late episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and I'm joined tonight by Jason. That's me. That's, uh, that's you. I'm, I'm all confused because I had the YouTube feed in the background, so I was watching us start, and it's amazing. I know, it's weird. It's weird. So any of you watching live will notice we have a slightly different format to the, uh, the, the stream now. And this is because YouTube is getting rid of Hangouts on Air later this year, which is what we depended on to do the live stream. And they're not replacing it with something that does something just like Hangouts on Air, which is disappointing. But very Google-like. <laughs> so we've had to force, or we, we've forcibly been moved into trying something new. So uh, we're trying out OBS tonight. I'm streaming that way, which means a lot more complexity on my end. So I'm hoping this is working well. So, otherwise, uh, uh, this, this is this is fun. You keep cutting in and out on my side. Oh, that's awesome! Probably because the stream is live now. Really, really interesting to try to understand you. Oh, good. Well, um, the best I can say is I hope that's not happening on the live feed. We'll figure it out for next time. Um, I don't want to be troubleshooting. If it gets to be a real problem, I'll just stop sending video, and uh, we'll send audio only from me to you. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't figure out exactly what I do audio or video on this all the time, and it's not an issue. So, anyway. Well, I could talk all about the difference, but we'll we'll save that for after the show. All right, so let's go ahead and get in, get into the news, and we'll go from there. Sound good? Say yes. Say that sounds great. Yes, it sounds great. Uh, <laughs> on the bright side, I yeah. can hear you fine. <laughs> So. Well, that's good. That means <laughs> yeah. it's recording. So That means okay. it's recording. So, all right. So, we got a, let's see, from Vice, article from Vice, about a do-it-yourself internet network has dynamically, or drastically, expanded its coverage in New York City. So, um, what is this? A mesh that was set up by the community? Yeah, so I guess the my understanding, and I've heard of this. I mean, this isn't this isn't new per se. It's been around for a while. Um, which they're they're starting to expand, um, I guess, more rapidly. Um, but they they basically got fed up with the uh, wonderful service that you can get in uh, New York, and decided to go out on their own and uh, make their own mesh. Um, so it's in. Uh, uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, it's called NYC Mesh, um, and it's it's a it's a wireless. I mean, mesh. It's, it's a wireless mesh. 
Um, I I would hope. I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly how, like what the upstreams are or what it looks like. Um, but the, I guess the, the rates aren't horrible. Um, according to this, the rate sheet is uh, the rate sheet says it's like either twenty or fifty dollars. It's a it's a and it's optional, which makes it even more interesting. Um, so it's a donation of twenty or fifty dollars for a residential user or a hundred dollars for a business. Um, and then you have to pay for like a one-time install, if you will. It's $110 for the router, uh, including the antenna, and 50 bucks to install it. Um, so, which, so this I mean, is this is up. this is access you can get like at your business, like at a stationary point that is a client on this mesh. Is that the way you're describing this? Yes. That's neat. yeah. So I mean, think of think of like your cable modem or your DSL, except. This is wireless. So what? Uh, somebody somewhere has a gateway to the internet, and they have gatewayed this mesh to some sort of a high bandwidth connection to the internet, some kind of backbone, and then the mesh is yeah, just sort I mean, of covering the city or part of the city. Right. So it's it's mesh, and I'm wondering if there's multiple. I mean, depending on how they did it, they could have multiple back multiple uh, upstreams in distributed locations. I mean, it's all it all depends on how they set up the routing. Um, and actually, I think I may be wrong, but I think uh, one of our DC610 members was in on this when it first started. Oh, really? If I remember, he was talking, I'm pretty sure this is what he was talking about. Um, he was one of the guys that helped start this whole thing back in 2013, I think it was. That's um, pretty awesome. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's growing strong. Um, well, maybe we'll have to follow like up said, with him, and maybe we can have him talk about it on the show sometime. Might yeah, I, I I would be happy to uh, join this as well. Um, so if you guys can set up an antenna that can get here, um, I'll send you fifty bucks a month, no problem. Yeah, right. If you can get a mesh all the way, you know, south of New York City, south of New York border into Pennsylvania, um, you know, that'd, yeah. be, that'd be great. Just keep extending that mesh till it gets to us. Yep. So what, what could go wrong? It'd be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so the, I guess the new install is a, uh, super node three antenna, which has 50 times the capacity of the original node. Um, so it's interesting, you know, single point of failure, but I'm sure they're going to fix that over time. No, why um, would they do that? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested. Cool. So, so you heard it here. You can, if you're, if you're fed up with Verizon and and you know whoever the other carriers are in your area, just do it yourself. Indeed, do it yourself. I mean, I guess this works well in a city. I don't know how well it would work in a more rural area. But I mean, we could certainly cover like the town we're living in. Yeah. So so I mean, I I, I we did the wireless ISP thing uh, back in the day, and. In a a city is a little bit different because it's it's highly reflective surfaces because of all the buildings. Yeah, um, and I think uh, I think that actually works in their favor um, because the the signal you know the signal is a bit stronger um, in a rural area like we're in. Um, the problem is the trees. Well, yeah, uh, trees. Trees are dense, and they're made of wood. Yep. Wood the doesn't. Trees, uh, 
<laughs> it's, it has nothing to do with the wood. It's the water in the trees. The trees absorb the oh, okay. wireless signal. Neat. And uh, it makes it very difficult to uh, uh, to do widespread wireless. But so you'd have to if be, you have a mesh setup... You'd um, have to be above the trees, and then you'd have well, range if, if, problems because you're up too high. Right, but if it's but if it's mesh and you yeah. have a lot of low areas that have you know relative line of sight, you may actually be okay. But so. then, where would you put your mesh points? Like you, you'd have um, to get, you'd have to get clearance. Yeah, I, from... I, I think it would be. I think it would be weird, but um, yeah. you know, in, in in our area, I think it's particularly dense with uh, trees and, and foliage. But in well, you're, you're literally some of the in areas the where it's where there's lots of, of houses, but not as much tree cover. I think it works a little bit better. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yes, very so, cool. So uh, we're we're gonna start the Iron Sysadmin net, and it's gonna start here uh, in in Northeast PA, and it's gonna expand to cover the entire state, even those areas that are nothing but trees. You'll have internet access in the trees. It'll be iron mesh. Um, all of our radios are going to be a little bit more expensive, but they're going to be made out of out of like you know iron. Oh um, right, right. You may have to you may have to enhance the your house a little bit. Uh, your roof has to be able to handle the amount of weight that we're going to put the on. The amount it, of but, iron in the yeah, in the iron be, net. It'll be wonderful. Yes, yes, that'd be awesome. Okay, I think we've officially uh, lost track of the article. So moving on. <laughs> There was an article? There was an article. This is kind of cool. The the Pentagon loves you. Uh, This is from technologyreview.com. Oh, MIT Technology Review. Okay, cool. Uh, The Pentagon has a laser, lasers, that can identify people from a distance by their heartbeat. It's the Jetson prototype. Nice, nice. So I, oh, I'm not sure what the Jetsons have at all to do with that. Um, well, but, it's uh, it's all futury like. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. You know. So they. Were, um, yeah. It it can pick up your unique cardiac signature from 200 meters away. Yeah. Through your clothes. See, the government is looking so through your clothes. Like, it's. I feel violated. So, is your heartbeat really that unique from person to person? Yes. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's as unique as your eye or your fingerprint. That's interesting. I would think heartbeats could only be so unique. Like, there's got to be two people on the planet that have a similar heartbeat or the same heartbeat. No, I mean it's like a. Thump, well, you're thinking. Thump. I think you're thinking of um of the actual beats per minute. This is this is, this is like this the is further. Uh, it's almost the like the sound I guess that the heart makes. Interesting. Yeah, I um, guess. I don't, I don't know it quite well enough, but I think I, I think it's. If, to that. I wonder if a person's level of physical fitness changes that. Like if I'm a big overweight uh, slob and I decide to get my act together and I go lose 110 pounds and become a distance runner, my heartbeat's going to beat differently than it did. Or is it again, not? Again, you're thinking about beat. Well, I'm not necessarily, That's, right? I don't think so, the shape of your heart ever changes. Well, no, well, it could because your your heart can be like encased in fat if you're really overweight which I think would change the way it beats, huh. not just the frequency that it beats at, but how it beats. That's why uh, an overweight person can have an unhealthy heart, mainly because it has to work harder, but also because it becomes fatty. But if you're fit, or if you're overweight and become fit, or if you're fit and become overweight, that could change the overall physics of your heart, I would think. Yeah, well, this apparently uses um, laser vibrometry. Laser vibrometry. Laser vibrometry. 
caused by the heart. Um, so if that's the case and it's actually the, you know, the surface of the heart itself, then any layer of fat around it doesn't matter. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a cardiovascular expert. Um, it just, you know, seems to me that that would change the, the physics of your heartbeat. I don't know. I also don't fully understand how this works, but it is pretty right. neat and it is kind of scary. Yeah, uh, more beams from the government being shot at my body. That's, well, that's the, all we need. the other thing is, like, there's a fingerprint database of all of us, you know, from when you had your fingerprints taken when you were in kindergarten or something, um, unless they're not doing that anymore. But uh, I remember when I was a kid, they took all of our fingerprints because, you know, if we got stolen or something, they wanted to have our fingerprints. Right, right. Which, which was really so. just so that the law enforcement would have our fingerprints from when we were young and couldn't say no. Um but uh, they didn't, that I'm aware of, they didn't take any um, readings from my heart. <laughs> so they don't have a database in which to compare heartbeats to, at least not yet. That you know of. So that we know of. You are correct. I could be wrong. So well, all, those, all those, those contrails that you see in the sky, that's the planes flying over getting your heartbeat. Oh, the chemtrails. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it, it gets everybody's heartbeat, and then it drops those chemicals down to calm everybody down. Mm. Mm. I'm not going to go into that. I actually had a conversation with a guy at a Jeep Jamboree who firmly believed that. Since I was representing Jeep Jamboree, I just had to calmly go, uh-huh, mm-hmm, okay, yep. Yep, <laughs> yep, uh, okay. Didn't so, want to get, an argue uh, with, get in an argument with one of the participants. So, anyway. Might as well. Okay, well, you know, hey. Uh, speaking of government, um, NASA is going to start launching drones. Yay, NASA. I was, just earlier today, I was on a, uh, a Red Hat Accelerators call with someone from NASA because they were talking about OpenStack. It's pretty fun. Anyway, related only in that it was NASA, and this is from NASA. Yep. So okay, Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> More NASA robots on Mars, or Titan, anyway. Yep. No, well... Is it? Yeah, Titan, Saturn. Titan. Not Mars. Oh, Saturn. right, right, right. See, yeah, Mars is Phobos and Deimos, right? I only remember that because uh, of Doom. Yes, right. So uh, they're they're going to send a quadcopter. I'm sorry, quad rotor dro drone. Quadcopter. Is it, is it a quadcopter or is it a drone? Because it all depends on you know the context uh, and whether you okay, want to call so it evil or not. Rotors and it flies. Good. Sounds good. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna go monitor um, all of the uh, aliens on Titan, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure there'll be missiles at some point fired down at them because government drones you got to fire something. Have we have we um, given up on uh, on Mars at this point? Why don't we send a quadcopter to Mars? Uh, probably has to do with the um, the atmosphere. So, oh yeah, I guess, guess I is, didn't even consider that. Yeah, my my guess is that whatever <laughs> the atmosphere is on Titan, it is. Um, there's enough of an atmosphere for a drone to be able to do let's, something. Let's see your quadcopter fly with no atmosphere. Does it work that way? I thought. Well, no. I guess yeah. If there's no, hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, Titan yet, has a nitrogen heavy atmosphere. Yet another thing I am not an expert in, which I cannot that I I, I cannot speak intelligently on, but. Yeah, I never even thought of that. 
atmosphere matters. Yeah, this is I think this is just cool because I mean, if you think about it, it is. It's far enough away that um, they're going to have to program the drone where to go, mm-hmm. when to you know, like what what path it's going to take, and everything else, and it's going to do all of that and then send that information back. So they're going to have to like yeah. send packets of like go do this thing. Um, sort of what they were doing with the the rovers on Mars. Yeah. Um, this one is is you know rovers on Mars were like turn left, turn right, go straight, go backwards. Yeah, there's a lot of that altitude like, and yeah, altitude and velocity and you know you have to deal with all that stuff. Man. So that's going to take some some heavy calculations. Good thing it's NASA doing this. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and I mean worse is is uh, I don't know how I don't know how Titan is, but I mean the, the stuff that we send into space can't be like we can't send you know the latest the, the latest uh the latest i7 yeah the, we can't send the latest i7 processor into space f- and you know expect it to work because apparently you know these weird rays from space rays come and destroy it very rapidly that wouldn't be so good. we have to send like this old eh, old we, we send this armored technology up there which tends to be um much slower and older yeah. Than current tech. Why can't um, they armor the current tech? Come on. It doesn't have to be uh, old. I guess it, I'm I, sure it, it's. Harder, I think it's more a lot of it has to do with um, uh, uh, dissipating the heat because right. uh, dissipating heat in space is like not easy. Once again, uh, atmosphere. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe they're able to put like encase this thing in lead and send it to titan and then when it lands on titan it melts the lead and comes out and it works fine i, I don't know <laughs> there you go <laughs> um but they're so they're expecting a two and a half year mission um this thing's going to go about 110 miles or so yeah and, uh um we'll know the results of it somewhere in 2035 you're kidding me of course we will be way too busy dealing with the end of the epoch uh and and patching all of our systems um <laughs> hopefully they remember that before they send this thing up uh but yeah 35 my gosh it's not launching till 2026 oh okay I can't, I can't think in terms like that i mean that's seven years from now i, I can't mean, i have no idea what i'm gonna do in seven years how can you even plan like a career of the people working on it. You know, like, okay, you and I work at NASA. We have this great idea to send a quadcopter to NASA or to, to, to Titan, right? And we're like, yeah, let's work on that. We get a team built. We design the thing. We get it launched. It's now 2026, right? We spent all that time working to get the thing launched. It's going to be what? 10 years? No, it's going to be what? Eight years, right? You said right. 2032? 2034. 2034. So it's going to be, yeah, like eight years. Eight years. And then, like, all those people could have moved away from NASA. They could have went and got other jobs. They could have been hit by bosses, whatever. I hope they took good notes. Look at the Mars rovers. I mean, that was that was a decade of planning. Yeah. The thing was flying and everything I guess, else. So. I guess they're, they're good at this. <laughs> so, so... Um, Looking down at the discussion, because it's always fun to read the comments, um, one of the comments is, you know, how, how are they going to get 110 miles out of this thing? You know, that's 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 a lot of range. And the pictures in the 
in the uh, article don't show things like um, solar panels or, or anything. Well, they're renderings. Uh, Come on. No, right. But, you know, usually their renderings are yeah. relatively accurate. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the commenters replied back and and I think this came right from the article and I missed it. But uh, uh, you can't really do um, solar power on Titan because the atmosphere is hazy. Oh, yeah. This this thing's going to have an MMRTG, which is not a new type of video game. What's it? What's uh, that? Multi-mission radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Holy crap. MMRTG. It's going to have a... It's going to have an onboard MMORPG. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's going (laughs) to... Yes. (laughs) It's going to have its own little thermonuclear reactor. That's awesome. So Some life form on Titan is going to think we're attacking them with this thermonuclear detonator. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> it's really just a quadcopter we're using to explore. That's awesome. Yep, yep. So I'm going to let you handle this transition. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks a lot. From You're welcome. You're welcome. From drones that can spy on you to fake nudes. How's that? <laughs> okay, that works. <laughs> um, I just I just saw this today. Um. And apparently this was like a, a rapid rise and fall. Um, so you've heard of deep fakes, um, that wonderful AI generated uh, uh, video stuff that you can make anybody say anything and whatever. Um, so this guy, uh, he's apparently anonymous, uh, created something that he called deep nude. Okay. And it used AI... Um, it took a picture of like a, a clothed female mm-hmm. um, and it used AI to artif- to digitally remove her clothes. Oh, so this show, a, show a, a photorealistic image of what that person would look like naked. So this wasn't putting their head on someone's body or whatever like the other deep fakes have been. This was literally like making conjectures as to what this individual person would look like naked. Yes. Wow. Um, and what happens if they're wearing uh, baggy clothes? Do they just look all funny? I, <laughs> I don't know. The app is gone. and, and <laughs> Probably I, a good thing. I found out about it only because... So it, it, it came up and I, and I found the, the article because um, basically what happened was this guy had created it and... Um, was I guess he had a crisis of conscience. Oh, um, and well, decided that well, good that the the app was being misused. Um, <laughs> what despite, did he think? What did he think was going to come out of this app? I mean, well, he what, added safety what? measures. He put a he put a watermark on it that said fake, so nobody will use it. Oh, okay. Well, you know, nobody nobody would abuse it if it says fake on it. Did it make and, a uh, Did it make a picture or like a live recording? Uh, it was just a picture. If it was a picture, yeah, you couldn't possibly remove that watermark. Right, right. <laughs> not at um, all. Not, so he, that's not a thing I've done in the that, past. Uh, it, you're going to like this. So he decided that despite the safety measures, um, the probability that people would be would misuse it is too high, and he didn't want to make money that way. Um, 
And he said, you know, surely it's going to be out there and people are going to share it, but they don't want to make, they don't want to be the ones to sell it. Um, and he capped it off with uh, downloading the software from other sources or sharing it by other means would be against the terms of their website. So, of course, that's going to stop it up. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody listens to terms and conditions, right? Yeah. 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 The, so, the terms uh, said I can't use this to release naked pictures of people that didn't give me consent. So, obviously, I won't do that. Right, and he's not releasing new versions, and he's not granting anyone use of that that software anymore. Um, and the license to activate the premium version um, is is being disabled as well. I have not been able to, like, again, I spent like thirty seconds on this, but I haven't I haven't really dug into what the premium version did. I think, based on what I've seen, the premium version just meant that there were no black bars over the naughty bits. Obviously, the premium um, version removed the watermark. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think the, that I'm was kidding. the whole thing. Like, I'm kidding. I had a watermark the whole time. I'm kidding. Um, oh, so you don't actually our, get any good bits without paying? Is that what you're saying? I guess. Or good um, fake bits? Although, although, apparently, they so this apparently was a Python app, um, and they, they bypassed the registration with two lines of python well yeah that's so, nice um and uh there's a note in here so so the, this goes on about you know whether it was wrong of them to create it and you know people fall on both sides of this uh, but there was a note on this because the guy you know, basically it was like the guy was like oh i can't do this you know i feel bad for having created this um and there's a note in here that says that the app only worked on women well, nobody but, wants to see naked guys. Well, but it says if you tried to use it on a photo of a man, Did it, turn it just a added female genitalia to him. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so apparently this was designed to make nude women and nude women only. So or make uh, nude but men apparently nude women. It's, it's, it's dead, quote, dead at this point. Um, but I'm sure it'll be out there for eternity now. Yeah. I'm sure someone has a copy of this thing. Oh, there's, it, I'm sure it's floating around everywhere. So, I'm really curious to see how the pictures looked. There's, there's, there's a couple different um, news articles from reputable sources that have examples, and it looks exactly the way you would think it would. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, what's I guess. Funny is there were there were a couple of them um, depending on the clothing and I guess like you can't see different parts but um, some of the clothing had like strings on it mm -hmm. so presumably it removed where the clothing was on the body but the strings are still coming off the side of the of the person which, why does that which, woman's butt have tassels <laughs> yes, exactly yeah so um, That's yeah weird. but I mean it, you know overall it's it's uh there's there's a bit of outrage on it um, well, yeah, I mean, so I'm, I am curious of the job it did simply because, like, this is a thing that hasn't been done before, and I'm curious to see how good of a job it did. Not because I'm trying to be a pervert. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, this is a bad thing. I mean, anything from, that can... From, from this article and other articles that I've looked at about this, apparently it does a good enough job to make it look real. Yeah. There's no... It's just like the the deep fakes thing. Like if you don't know what you're looking for, yeah, you think it's real. yeah. 
which and you know is it surprising that something like this came out not really i mean that's it's you know they're able to do this with other things it doesn't really surprise me that I mean, they were able to do this. Look at the terrible things that happen online, and look at the way the adult industry has gone. I mean, like, there was a time when, like, one of the most popular things that you could get in 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 adult film was like people spying on people, right? Yeah. And like, that's creepy. <laughs> that's just really creepy, and it it breaks so many ethical. Um, um, Rules, Forget ethical. It, it actually breaks the it law. It breaks the law as well, right? So, I mean, you know, argue whether they were real or not, but I mean, that's creepy. This is the new level of that, because you know, perverts will be perverts, I guess. Just creepy stuff. All right, and on that note, I think we finished the news. Unless we want to talk more about how creepy that is and uh, the sort of experience Jason and I have with looking at the darker side of the web. <laughs> No, um, but uh, I think we we may have like set a land speed record for news. I know. Well, let's see. We've been live. Uh, it's been half an hour. Okay. S- since we went live, I don't know. Go us. You know, we were silent for a bit of that. Yay, news! All right, we're going to transition now. Is there is there like a cool OBS transition that you use? Like, do we like pop out in three D and spin and come right back? Or no, not not quite. Though no. we could do things like uh, pause for a break and go back to the waiting screen, you know, and then people can't hear us, and we like go visit the bathroom or get another beer or whatever. So uh, like that's that's uh, cool stuff we can do, and I I believe we can we can put music in, you know, like like during that waiting screen we could have had like hold music essentially. Um, but I haven't gone that far yet. Well, let, let us know what you think of the new format, I yeah. guess, or the new look. Yeah. So, like Those I mentioned, listening to us as a podcast, you've noticed they're like, nothing. "What are you talking about?" So, if you want to see what the heck we're talking about, hop on over to YouTube, YouTube.com/slash/IronSysAdminPodcast, and you can just look at this episode, episode number sixty-three, um, and you can see what the differences are. Um, Basically, we went from Hangouts on Air, which was just a very simple, uh, it did, you know, highlighting whenever, whichever one of us was speaking would show up as highlighted on the, the video, and it was a really simple way to stream. Um, I didn't have to worry about anything other than starting the stream up. It handled the video and voice call that we were doing, and it also streamed via YouTube. It didn't use a bunch of bandwidth. It didn't give us a lot of flexibility, but, um, you know, whatever. It was good enough for what we were doing here. I had thought for a long time about switching to something a little more complex like OBS because it lets us do transitions and it lets us do scenes and uh, it'll let us, gives us a little more flexibility with the video and stuff. Um, and yes, as you've mentioned in the chat, Jason, we can we have a nice little uh, chat hovering above the, uh, uh, the stream now, which is kind of fun. Yep, yep. So if you chat with us on, you know, live on the video, which no one is tonight because we're recording on Thursday instead of Wednesday and no one thought to watch us, I guess. Maybe we're conflicting with some other awesomer show like Paul or something. Um, anyway, um, you can see the chat show up, although it has this stupid community guidelines thing that I can't get rid of. Yeah, that's part of the... It's annoying. I'm not sure how it's doing. It's almost like it's scraping... That's exactly what it's doing. 
page. Yeah. So, so the the chat wow. window that's on there is a, a source in OBS, which is basically it it mimics a browser. So when I start the live stream, I literally copy the URL for the chat and paste it into the the browser thing in OBS, and it puts it there. It removes the background and stuff, so it's transparent. I'm sure the the OBS devs are listening to us right now. Absolutely. And they'll, they'll have this sorted Absolutely. for us by the next uh, no, podcast. No, so. Um, my experience with OBS came from I, I tried doing some game streaming with uh, Twitch because I was curious about it. And there's a plugin for OBS which will integrate so seamlessly with Twitch's chat that they literally just like pop up and they fade out and you can color them and it's really cool. And I was hoping YouTube had the same thing and they don't. It doesn't have the same integration. It's probably just because of the way YouTube does their... Uh, their chat or something, and Twitch does it differently or better in some way. But, uh, yeah, um, maybe we'll just move to Twitch. How's that sound? <laughs> Forget this YouTube crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then after, like, by the time we move to Twitch, that'll be the old thing, and there'll be something new, like, you know, I don't know. Right. Totally. We're just, new. We're just I, can't, gonna, I can't think of a funny name. We're just going to jump from streaming platform to streaming platform, and then call it good yeah we're never going to facebook live so just i refuse to, to do i mean anything. the cool thing is we can output from obs we can output to so many things we can output to twitch we can output to youtube you can probably output to facebook facebook live anything that, it, that supports an external encoder we can we can output to which gives us some options which is pretty cool options are fun options are fun so uh at any rate aside from obs um some of you might have noticed that we had a little poll since our last episode. So after we talked to Jack two weeks ago, right, two weeks ago, um, I had this great idea. I was curious for some feedback from folks about um, basically what parts of the show they like. Uh, so I just threw together a quick Twitter poll in about two seconds of thinking, you know, and I, I put together the, the things that we generally cover on the show, and I asked people which ones they liked the most. Um, after thinking about this, I think it would have been more useful to have people rank what they liked about the show instead of just giving them one vote, you know, rank these one to four, four being the most liked or something like that. But you know, whatever, um, what we have is what we have. Do a Twitter poll ranking thing. We can't do that on a Twitter poll. That's, that's what I'm saying. We'd have to, we would have had to have done something a little more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little more advanced than a Twitter poll, but anyway, well, we could, Jack, Jack, I know, I know you're listening, Jack, and and I, if you could put this feature into Twitter for us, we would very much appreciate it. Uh, we'll we'll send the new poll out in a week um, using this new feature that you're going to create just for us. I'm not sure how Jack would do that. <laughs> but he runs Twitter, like he can't just. No, I was not. Code, right? What, what are you talking about? You must be talking about some other Jack. I'm talking about the Jack we interviewed on the show two weeks ago, who does not run Twitter. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm talking about Jack, the guy that owns Twitter. Oh, he's I didn't. Gonna, I didn't know the guy. That for us. I didn't know yeah, the guy that owns us Twitter. Too. Is named Jack. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. The uh, Dorsey, right? I don't know. Why am I going to sound stupid if this is wrong? <laughs> it's it's actually a woman named Jane. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yes, uh, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, with the with the beard and the yeah okay you obviously know more about the inner workings of twitter than i do 
Yeah, he's obviously a listener, and he's listening, and he's going to fix that by next time. Then we're going to have a new poll. He's, so anyway, he's like that guy that was on MySpace that followed everybody. I forget Tom. what the hell his name. Tom. Tom. Yeah. Yeah. I never had a MySpace account, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you didn't miss much. So, um, anyway, the results, <laughs> the results of said poll. <laughs> are that you folks like the guests and interviews that we've done, which are, of all of the shows we, that we've done is probably the least used segment we've ever, because we don't do a lot of interviews. Um, yes. So maybe we're going to try to do more. I don't know. Uh, I asked for four things. One was news coverage, sysadmin stories, which we've shared a number of, uh, guests and interviews, which was one, and of course... Technical deep dives, and Jason asked. Uh, Jason added more Xenophage, which got a ninety-nine percent. Yes. Yes. Yeah, of, weird. I, so we the poll is broken. We've got a hundred ninety-nine percent votes. Ninety-nine percent being for more Xenophage. <laughs> so thirty-two percent of you said you like guest interviews the most, uh, or like that the best. That's how I, I phrased the question. Twenty-six uh, percent. Two of the items are tied, sysadmin stories and technical deep dives, and 16% news coverage. So I guess either that means we do a bad job of covering the news, or people don't care that we cover the news, or that I simply have a badly crafted poll, and we need a better way to find this out. It's your fault. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not about to suggest that we stop covering the news, because I, I don't think that's what people want. If anybody wants us to stop covering the news, let me know. If anyone has suggestions on how we could better, you know, um, cater to what you want to hear, let us know. Uh, maybe we can craft a better poll of some sort. I don't know. This was really just sort of like off the cuff. I thought, you know, I'm curious. Um, I've asked things like this of listeners in the past, and we never got a, a good result um, just because there weren't a lot of people watching for said things. But we have more listeners now, and that's cool. So I figured I'd ask again. Um I don't know if this is going to directly change anything. Maybe we'll shuffle up how we do the show. Maybe we'll do no news at the end. Maybe we'll do less news. Maybe we'll just do it the same way we are now. I did get one person uh, tweeted at me and said, don't change anything. I like it the way it is. So nobody else did that. I don't know if that means no one else cares. <laughs> so if you feel strongly about the format of the show, let us know. I think that's all we have for announcements. I don't know that... Did you? Did your cool review uh, alert service tell you we have any new reviews? I didn't go looking. No, no. People, leave reviews. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th th then that's not because we're trying to climb the YouTube... Or not YouTube. Climb the um, uh, uh, Apple Podcast charts. It's simply because we want to hear feedback. We want to know what you guys like and what you don't. Same reason I made that poll. So either review it or send us an email... Um, podcast at ironsysadmin.com if you want to send us some direct feedback with comments or suggestions. Uh, if you guys don't tell us, we won't really know what you want us to cover or how you want us to, how you want the show to be. And, um, I mean, I guess silence would be complacence. Well, we're, we're shouting into the darkness here. We're just curious how anybody's listening. Yeah, right. So that that's really what it is. We're doing the best we can. We had some decently positive feedback from folks we have talked to and that's cool we're not asking for negative feedback but if you have any suggestions or if there's anything you'd like us to do differently or do more of or less of just let us know and we'll we'll try to incorporate that because we do this because you know we want you guys to enjoy the show 
All right, so enough on that. I found the craziest, well, not craziest, one of the funniest um, how-to videos I think I've ever come across. Uh, and, and what makes it funny is that it's so, that it's actually serious. So um, I was browsing around Twitter, I think, and I ran across a tweet from somebody. And it's this video from, uh, from GE about how to factory reset your smart light bulb. Your C by GE light bulb. I'm going to start playing the video. Uh, you guys should be able to hear it momentarily. Welcome to C by GE's smart tips. We're going to show you how to factory reset your C by GE bulbs, which will unpair your bulb from other devices and apps that it's connected to. There are two factory reset processes, which depend on the generation of bulbs and the firmware you're running on. Here's the first process. That's good music Designed in the background for bulbs too. with this package. Very Trendy. Or for firmware version 2.8 or later. Your light bulb has firmware, Start people. Start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. Then, turn on the bulb for this, eight seconds. This is where it gets exciting. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. So I'm just going to let this play in the background a bit while we chat. Can you guys still hear it? I hope so. Turn off. Jason, can you hear seconds. it? Yep, I can hear Turn it. You're doing good. You, you figured out how the mixer works. Totally. So um, it's it's still going, by the way. So the, the reset for two procedure <laughs> is to turn, turn on, on your bulb for eight seconds to turn it off and then on again. And then off again, and on again, and turn it goes off. through this sequence Two like seconds. six times. And then turn it on one last time. And then it blinks. The bulb will and, flash on and, and on. And, and, and that's for the one firmware version. That the reset was successful. If it doesn't, your bulb may be running on an older version of firmware, <laughs> and will need to try the second factory reset process, which is designed for C by GE bulbs with this package, and or for firmware package, version 2.7 or earlier. Ready? Okay, start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll spoiler alert. Then it's the exact same procedure, except you're seconds. turning it off for different numbers of seconds. Yeah. And it's more confusing. Like the last one was turn it on turn for five, five seconds, seconds, I think, and then off for eight, on, on for, for two, two off for eight, on for two, off turn for eight. Off it was very easy seconds. to follow. You just had to keep doing that. Eight, two, eight, turn two. On for two seconds. This one's like two, turn eight, two, two six, eight, five. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. <laughs> so so <laughs> when I saw this, uh, so the commentary around this was, was really funny because the uh, a lot of people were... Uh, um, Turn off for two I think seconds. I saw the Geneva Convention mentioned at least once. <laughs> um, uh, torture was uh, mentioned multiple times. Turn um, for two seconds. Uh, and, you know, and what the hell were they thinking? Um, the you know, lo lots of interesting commentary. So, on the one hand, um, for more smart tips about the, our smart products, go to see the on off. Like, I mean, so it's a light bulb. What? inputs do you have to be able to do anything with it at all yeah so i i get so, that so turning it on and off is actually kind of you know excuse I, the pun but kind of brilliant i get that i get that okay so here's the thing though it's a smart light bulb it has circuitry inside 
it has Bluetooth controller, it has software, so that it's able, yeah. firmware, sorry, because firmware is somehow different than software because it's firmer. Does it work out more? Um, why couldn't they put a button on the side of the stupid thing? You should see the pecs on my firmware. Yes. My light bulb has awesome pecs. Well, because people aren't going to know what to do with a, a button on a light bulb. So, so like the on-off sequence is okay. It just doesn't need to be on-off well, 20 I, times. I, I get it. So what they were trying to do is make sure that you didn't accidentally trigger this by turning the bulb on and off and on and off quickly. So they have this crazy sequence that's a little too convoluted. <laughs> I, no, I, I, again, I, I get it, but <laughs> when I'm turning a bulb on and off, it's it's pretty consistent, like on, off, on, yeah, off, on, off. It's not eight seconds, then two on, seconds, then eight seconds. Off, seconds on two seconds on, like and, at that point like if i've done it twice i'm trying to do something with the bulb what's what's even better is that in the comments or in the the twitter comments um somebody said uh they were i guess they were looking around ge's website to actually find this to see if it was for real or not and it is um but they they found um like troubleshooting docs afterward you know, if this didn't work, like question and answer sort of stuff, like people writing in saying, I, I did this and it didn't work. And the usual answer was, maybe you're not counting right. So uh, apparently it's sensitive enough that if you do it for like nine seconds instead of eight, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work. And they even said, like, try counting or try saying Mississippi in the middle of your numbers. Like, is this grade school? <laughs> So what I find really funny about the video is that the that when they're going through the sequence, they're counting. Like when they say off for two seconds, they wait two seconds. Yeah. On for eight seconds, they and wait the, eight yes, seconds. Yes, the video counts down from eight to zero and it has a little little uh, uh, graph on it that counts down. So those pauses in the video were that, if you were listening that closely while we were talking. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I get the smart light bulb thing. I understand why this is a thing, but I I I had to chuckle when they when I first watched it and it said about firmware resetting the firmware in your light bulb, because you know we're from a generation where firmware in light bulbs was not a thing. My kids will probably be like, "Why isn't there firmware in the light bulbs?" <laughs> or their kids. <laughs> I, I I like this comment. To reset your light bulb, you need to look like someone with OCD. If you have older firmware, you need to look like an impatient person with OCD. <laughs> nice. Uh, so anyway, that was that was my entertainment for this week. Yeah, it's it's uh it's disturbing the number of things that have firmware in them now. Um, yeah, I've seen uh, there are uh, actually uh, Apple's um, Apple's chargers have. Uh, firmware in them of some sort. Um, really? Usually, it was the job of the device you plugged in to be smart enough to like do. Yeah, like, I believe if I understood correctly, that there's 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 a very low. I mean, it never gets updated or anything, but apparently, it's a, a very low level firmware in like the chargers themselves. Wow. Not not the first device I've seen like that. Yeah, it's not the, the first time I've heard of that. Firmware. Um, but the, I mean, there's firmware and damn near everything. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's welcome to today's world. Well, I mean, everything needs to be smart now. And I mean, that's progress, right? But it does make, it does add more complexity to just about everything you interact with. 
which is kind of a shame. Yep. That's just me. Yep. I just <laughs> I, as long as I can get my as long as I get my light bulb on the internet, I'm good. I don't want my light bulbs on the internet. Because we'll find out later that all of the GE light bulbs have cameras in them and they've been watching us all this time. Sort of like right. the, what what was it the that we covered was it the Nest? Something had a microphone uh, in it that nobody knew had yeah. a microphone. Nest. I forget something, what it was. from Google, I think. Yeah, because I, I remember it not being all that surprising because it was from Google. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of my tech support days when I had a guy on the phone um, who was, he was, this this will date it, um, he was on IRC and uh, was was talking to me, like he was, he had called into tech support. But he said he was on IRC talking to somebody uh, and they they were describing the clothes he was wearing and and all the stuff and he's like can they can they see me through my monitor? Yes, totally. Like no, they were they were cold reading you. <laughs> like this is a this is a technique that's been around for like hundreds of years. Yeah, right, right. I mean, your monitor. Um, my it's funny because just just this past week, my my mom had watched my kids and my sister's kid for a weekend and they went out to McDonald's or something. And, um, this old guy had come up to, um, my sister's son. And he said, I bet I can guess your name. If you give me a high five or whatever it was, or if you punch me in the hand or something like that. And, uh, you know, the kid did it and he's like, your name is such and such. Right. And he got the name, the kid's name, right? Well, what it really meant was that my mom had told the kid to like, get in line or to, you know, do whatever. And this, this guy just happened to notice, but it's the exact same thing, right? You just pick up on the, on the, the, the world around you and then you can do things that seem amazing. So yeah, same right. deal, same deal. Cold reading, except I guess that wasn't very cold reading. It was just that my mom yelled like, get over here. <laughs> child. child this name. Child X. Yeah. I just, I just don't want to release my uh, nephew's name on the internet. I'm sure you guys can all find it. George. It's George. George. His name is George. It's not that far off. <laughs> That's another boring name like that. I don't. I don't remember your nephew's name, so I, I don't. Can't you help may it. not know it. I'll tell you later. I might not. Okay. So anyway, I guess we can move along into the main topic. What do you think? Press the button. Press the button. Press the button, Frank. You know what that's from, right? You better. Uh, uh yes. Okay. If any listeners know from what that that's movie. from, if any listeners know what that is from, push the button, Frank. I need you to write in to podcast at Iron Sysadmin or tweet us or something, and I'll, I'll, I think I have stickers. I'll send you a sticker. <laughs> And if I don't have enough stickers, uh, sorry, I may not send you a sticker. It's not from what I thought it was. Okay. It's no, not from no. what you thought it was? No. Did, did Googling it find it for you? Because that's that's going to really cheapen this. Well, uh, no. I <laughs> Totally uh, not. <laughs> uh, I compressed time and spent a long time doing OSN <laughs> to, trying to determine what this meant. <laughs> uh, all right. So no, no cheating, folks. All right, so um, a week ago or so, 
I was surfing around Twitter. You might you might catch that I do this from time to time. And I came across a tweet from Nixcraft, which is a blog, I believe. That's all they do. Or they, you know, news site. or I mean, not news site, but whatever. They're like an article site, not necessarily news, uh, where they, you know, they release Unix-related and Linux-related articles. And they were talking about uh, locking down SSH. And the exchange that I saw in the comments, or not the comments, but the, the thread on Twitter, really made me wonder how many people really have a good, um, a good plan for locking down such an important service. So I've recent, I really recently got involved in this new project from Red Hat called Enable Sysadmin. Like it's, it's meant to be a play on like the system control stuff, system control enable thing. So enable sysadmin. Um, and it's basically like uh, people can contribute articles and then they'll publish them and then you can publish them on your own blog or whatever if you want to. But it's it's like a it's basically a sort of like Nixcraft where you get to write an article and they'll publish it for you. So I wrote an article for my own blog and I submitted it to them um, about locking down SSH. And I, I covered a couple of the best practices that I've used over the years and I gave people a little bit of a background as to what SSH is and why it's important that we protect it and whatnot. So I don't know how deep we want to go into what SSH is or why you protect it, because I don't know, I feel like people listening to this show should know that, but maybe we should at least go briefly into that, right? So um, yeah. S SSH is, is how do, I don't know how deep into history I want to go here. There secure used to be, shell. Yeah, secure shell. So it used to be that when you wanted to manage uh, a, a server or something, that you did via text or via a shell, you would use something like our login or telnet or one of these other unencrypted management, not even management, unencrypted protocols. If you ever logged into a BBS or something over the internet, you probably used telnet. And um, that's how we managed Linux servers in the late 90s, like 90, as late as 98 or so. In, I think it was 99, the, this came out of OpenBSD. OpenSSH was a thing, and it was a fork of a different project, if I remember correctly. Or did someone else fork OpenSSH? I read this when I was reading the article, but I dismissed it for some reason. Um, anyway, so basically, SSH, or what we're talking about specifically is OpenSSH, because that's the implementation of Secure Shell that you'll find on most Linux systems, and that's what I wrote the article around, is basically an encrypted tunnel between you and your server, and it gives you access to your shell, whatever shell you've decided you want to use, whether that's Bash or, you know, whatever. In most cases, that'll be Bash. So that's basically the background of what uh, SSH and OpenSSH is and what they accomplish. They're very, very powerful tools, as you'd, as you'd expect, and they enable a lot of other tools, like tunneling and automation with things like Ansible. Um, you can even do, like, file synchronizations and whatnot over SSH. It's a very versatile tool because it just gives you this encrypted tunnel that you can do lots of things over. So uh, obviously you would protect this because of the amount of power it gives you. If somebody breaks into SSH on your server, whether they got a privileged account or not, it's pretty much game over. Would you agree? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I so, mean, it, it's, it's, if, if you can get in on SSH, you've got, you've got shell access. I mean, you know, whether you have a root account or not. Um, escalation you know, from there. Local privilege escalations are kind of a dime a dozen, so. Yeah. Now, obviously, there there are other ways to get a shell, 
SSH is just the one that's most direct, right? So if you set up a server and you connect it to the internet and it has port 22 open, people are going to start attacking it pretty quickly. In fact, for no, this... You're wrong. See, because it's got secure in the name. It's got secure in the name. Nobody, nobody will hit it. World and it's fine. So what I, what I did, and I have a link in the show notes to the article that I wrote, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm vain like that, uh, narcissist and all. Um, I went to DigitalOcean, which is where I host my own stuff, and I set up a new droplet, and I didn't apply a security group to it. So it was basically just all the ports were open to the internet. And I didn't do anything with it. I literally just started it up. It was a CentOS box. I didn't do any configuration other than logging in. I logged into the thing, and I started tailing Varlog messages. No, Varlog Secure to watch for SSH attempts. It took, I think, an hour, and people were brute-forcing SSH that quickly. Now, obviously, that's a cloud provider. Their IP, bo IP block is probably well-known and scanned all the time for anything that's live that comes up with SSH open. But the point is... Uh, if you put a machine on the internet with <laughs> with port 22 open, people are going to start attacking it, and they're not even they're not even covert about it. I mean, the in the the blog entry, the user that they tried to log in with was literally called fake. <laughs> so why anybody would try I'm that? Sure what the point of that is, know. but yeah, I mean, I, I, actually, I think an hour is a little slow. It was probably um, a probe. I saw probably the hackers had the day off. The first, the first probe I saw to SSH that didn't come from me was about twenty minutes in, if I remember correctly, like twenty minutes after I booted it up. But the actual onslaught of attacks came roughly an hour after I started the thing up. So it's important, okay? If you're not protecting SSH, people are going to try to attack it. And if you're really lucky, they won't get in. But they probably will, unless you have really secure passwords. Uh, but there's a number of things you can do to try to lock it down. And that's what I thought we would talk about tonight. And we'll take our time, go through each one, go through some of the caveats, you know, things like that. So, number one on my list is don't freaking leave port 22 open to the world. Just don't. But Nate, how am I going to manage my server remotely? Yeah, right. So I get there's always someone who's going to say, but what about when I'm traveling and I need to get into a server? What about when I'm at home and I need to get into a server? What about, you know, this is a shell server and people need to access it from anywhere. There's ways around all those things. It's, it's all a question of how much, how much pain you want to go through. <laughs> So, I mean, the simplest thing is to simply say, you can't manage our servers unless you're on our corporate network. And that's pretty easy to solve if all of your workers, all of your sysadmins, or all of your shell users are local to your corporate network. If they're not local to your corporate network, obviously that's a problem. Um, but what you can do to mitigate that is to simply set up a VPN so that even remote remote um, users can appear to be local users. Now, obviously, that moves the single point of attack to the VPN, but at least it's not all of your hundreds, possibly, of servers that have SSH enabled, right? Right. So, so it's about security in depth. Yeah. So it's about creating layers. So if I if I pop your SSH box, I'm already on your server and I'm able to do things. Right. Um, now, if that's a jump server, that could be pretty bad if that's if that's you know just an outside server that's uh, your website i mean it's equally it depends on what sort of level of access that server has 
into the rest of your network. With the VPN, if I can pop your VPN, I've got access to get into your network now, but I don't necessarily have access into any of the servers themselves. Um, and of course, uh, your VPN, whatever you're using for authentication there is different from what you would use for SSH, right? Theoretically. <laughs> All right, so speaking of authentication, the next thing I do to every single machine that I ever set up SSH on is I turn off root logins. Now, I get why this is on by default, because you may not have a root login, or you may not have a user set up when you first install a machine, but as soon as you get a user installed, and personally, I do that at build time automatically, um, turn off root access. So when I build a machine, permit root login in, in the OpenSSH config file gets turned off because I have a local user that has sudo access. So there's no reason to allow root login. You should not be SSHing into your machines as root, period. You shouldn't be using the root account um, directly in almost every situation. That's yeah. what sudo is. Yeah, there really aren't a lot of reasons to log in as root directly unless you're in a case where your users are gone or you've been locked out of your user account or whatever. Right. And in that case, get to the console. <laughs> there is no reason to remotely log in as root at all. The next thing I always do, and this is more or less like you don't have to make any configuration changes to make this happen, but I set up an SSH key that requires a password. And when I log into a machine, I use the key to authenticate instead of the password. So if I'm sending credentials across the wire, I'd rather send crypto, like a key, than even an encrypted password. You agree? Absolutely. I think that's, that's valid. Um, plus, you know, it just makes things easier. You can, you can unlock your SSH key and store it in your local SSH agent and not have to unlock it every time you SSH to, SSH to a machine. And when you connect to a machine, you're not entering a password at all because the SSH agent is storing that. Um, so there's less chance you're going to type out your password and you get a little bit of convenience out of it. So why wouldn't you do this? Uh, personally, yep. and I went into this in the article, when I generate an SSH key, I usually define the number of bits I want it to be. Uh, recently, I've been using uh, 4096 just because that seems reasonable. The default, I think, is 3,000-something at the moment. Um, that seems to go up as time goes on. As things get easier to crack, the, the standard goes higher. I always try to aim a little higher than the standard. Right, and there's there's different types of ciphers that you yes. can use. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, AES or DES keys. Yeah, this is, these are RSA. Um, right, uh, right, RSA keys. So you can you can also use... Um, you can pick like different ciphers. Cipher keys, and I mean, there's different, different types of keys that you can use. So if you are a crypto nerd and know all about this stuff... Uh, you have the option of changing to something different. Yeah, yeah. So pick a different cipher if you want to. Um, basically, the the server you're SSHing to doesn't have to really know what cipher you're using. Um, I suppose that the SSH server could have certain ciphers enabled or disabled, and maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. I don't know if you have that on the top of your head there, Jason. I don't. Yep. But um, as long as the SSH server has that particular cipher enabled... I think that's how this, that's how that works. You can use whatever cipher you want and whatever key length you want. Again, I think the SSH server can have limitations on key lengths as well, though I haven't looked into that. So basically, when uh, you... I'm not sure about the key length, but the cipher-wise, both the client and the server can have lists of accept, accept, uh, acceptable ciphers. Right. 
long as you match, it, it basically goes from like strongest to weakest. Yeah. Um, and as long as you have a match on the client and the server of a cipher, it'll use that one. Um, and this is where this is and uh, uh, HTTPS does this as well. So this is where yeah. uh, it's a little bit more common in the web world, but this is where the um, there's an attack that basically downgrades the uh, encryption you're using. And the way it does that is that it won't accept anything but a weak cipher um, on the client side. Right. And then the, the server just says, oh, okay, we'll just use the weak one. Yeah. So one of the, you know, what Nate mentioned about changing the cipher is one of the things you want to do is, uh, and there's well-known sites out there that can give you the list of what the current currently accepted ciphers are. Um, by default, OpenSSH has a couple of arguably weak ciphers in it um, that you can disable. And uh, I haven't seen any effect. I mean, most most clients support the strong stuff anyway, so yeah, um, you're not you're not going to break anything. And and again, by limiting access to port 22 or whatever port you're running SSH on, uh, that mitigates this a little bit. If the bad guys can't even reach the port, they can't try to downgrade ciphers and try to get a lower right. cipher, you know, that, that's attackable in some way. So, you know, it's, again, this whole theory of, of defense in depth. If people can't reach the port, they can't attack it, period. If they can get to the port, you'll want to have only the best ciphers or the reasonably best ciphers enabled so people can't try to downgrade and do an attack that way. Right. So and now, since you're using a key yes. on your SSH that has a password on it, you're two-factor, right? Totally. Not quite. We'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so uh, the next thing, the next thing, which is where I thought you were going when you, when you did that little transition, was um, now that you're using a key and the key has a password and you can't authenticate without unlocking the key, disable password authentication on the SSH daemon. Now, this, again, will depend on your use case. If you have some sort of a broad shell server and you don't want to have to deal with making everyone generate a key, which is a thing I have done, by the way. I have talked people who have no idea what an SSH key is through generating an SSH key because that is the level of security that we want on SSH. Uh, you can turn off password authentication completely. Try to brute force passwords when passwords are turned off. It doesn't work. So I usually turn off password-based auth. It's just a, it's just an option in your uh, SSH config. Password authentication, no. And then the only way you can authenticate is with a key. So just some quick clarification, because we're, we're talking passwords on the keys and passwords right. authentic password authentication. So these are two different things. Password authentication in SSH is when you connect to an SSH server uh, it sends your username and then says, what's your password? Right. And this is that uh, system's password, your PAM right. password. Right. So that password is stored on the server that you're trying to connect to. Uh, that's what's in Etsy shadow or, right. you know, what be an Etsy password um, or whatever PAM is configured to use. Yes. The other password, uh, the key password that we're talking about is a password that is a, that is on the crypto key itself. It is not stored on the server. It is something that you have locally, um, and that in theory can't can't be cracked or stolen because the key exists on your client. Right. 
and, this, and there's there's a caveat with that that I think Nate will cover as well. Yeah, so this I mean, we may as well chat about that right now. If if you're going where I think you're going, um, you could and maybe should uh, implement a SSH key rotation policy, where periodically you are regenerating your SSH key. Now, personally, I do that when I do things like get a new laptop. I'm not doing it like every six months or something. This is not changing the password for your key, but generating an entirely new key. Because if today your pass, your your machine is, in, is infected with some kind of a Trojan, or you forget it on the bus and someone gets your SSH key off of it, the password on that key is valid for the file they've copied. If I change my key password tomorrow and you copied my key yesterday, then the password on that key follows the file, right? So my password two days ago on the key that was stolen two days ago will stay the same regardless of whether I've changed the password today or tomorrow. So you don't want to just change the password, although you can do that. You can change a password on an SSH key without changing the public key, which is how you'd be authenticating to these servers. Um, but if you're going to regenerate, if you're going to rotate keys, you need to actually regenerate the whole key, not just change the password. Right. So, and and regenerating keys can be painful because now you have to replace yes. all of the keys on all the servers. Right. There is a use for changing the password on a key. Um, I don't know how common it is, but if you have a system where a key is shared in some manner um, right. and come in and out, it, it, and it, given certain circumstances, you may want to change the password on the key. Yeah. Now, the caveat there is that you want to ensure that that key is inaccessible so that the person that's leaving could not have possibly gotten a copy of that key. Right. If you can't guarantee that, you might as well be creating new keys. I mean, personally, and by the way, sharing, if you're sharing keys, you may want to rethink that strategy too. Yeah, if I had a shared key and someone left that I didn't trust, or even if someone left that I did trust, I would probably regenerate the key. I don't think I would right. just change the password. There, the, every situation is different. Yeah. There are situations where you just cannot avoid shared accounts. Yeah. Um, as much as I hate to admit that, it, those those situations exist. And in those situations, if you can use a key, that's great. But you definitely want to have a mechanism where the person logging in can't access the key directly. Because, um, again, if they can copy it, even if you change the password, it's not going to matter. Okay, so moving on to the next thing, and this isn't necessarily an SSH thing, but more of a shell thing, so it's kind of related. Um, if you're running a shell server, or a server where people need to get shell, which is generally a shell server, um, one thing you can do to increase security, depending on the use case for the shell server, is you can put them into a root jail when they log in. And this would be whether they're logging in from the console or over SSH or whatever, um, I don't do this myself because we don't run a lot of shell servers, but if you're in like a mixed-use environment where people need shell so they can run Python or they can do something like that, uh, this might not be a bad thing. Uh, jailing them inside of their home directory, you know, it's not a new technique. It's certainly a thing that I've known about for a long time. Um, it was a suggestion that someone gave to me when I asked, you know, what the best practices people are using to, to secure SSH before I wrote this article. So I figured I'd include it. Yeah, that's one. I see that a lot with uh, uh, other 
software. So you may you may jail your Apache server or your yeah. Nginx server or you know something else. SSH jails are they're out there, but I don't, I don't see them as quite as common as as other things. Yeah, because shell servers are getting less common. Period. Generally, if if you need something right. that serves that purpose, there's other ways to do it without SSH or without a, without an actual shell. Um, so yep. that's getting less and less common. But yeah, if you need a shell server right. and that person does not need access to the rest of the system, they need access to, a, to certain specific things on the shell server. Uh, a T-root jail might be a good way to do that. All right, so did you have anything that was directly server-related uh, that you wanted to cover? I saw you put some stuff in the notes. Anything beyond what we yeah, already so talked I have about? Two other things, two, two other, two other things that you can do to lock down SSH. Um, there are instances where you need SSH open to the world um, because I don't know you you setting up a VPN server is is a, a step too far. Um, you know th there's there's reasons for it. Um, one of the things you can do is run SSH on a different port. Uh, that is, uh, it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This um, reminds me of my. Uh... If I scan your server, I can figure it out pretty quick. This reminds me of the days um, when I would administer SQL servers, and there was a check mock, a check box in the configuration that says hide the SQL server, and all it did was change it from fourteen thirty three to twenty four thirty three. Right. Because nobody would guess that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah that 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 port sent shivers down my spine. Yeah, uh, I remember that one. Fourteen thirty three. Uh, that's yeah. SQL Slimer. Yeah. Oh uh, right. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, that that's I mean you can do that it's it's not standard uh, and it it you know it doesn't do a whole lot to protect you. Um, yeah. Another thing you can do is use something called knock ports, um, and knock ports are interesting. Um, so basically, um, what you're doing is set. So there's a another uh, daemon that runs uh, called knockd. Um, I'm sure there's other ones, but knockd is the one I happen to know about. Yeah, and you give it a pattern um, of port numbers, right? And what happens is when you want to connect to SSH, you go, th you have your client. Well, you can do this manually too with like Telnet or Netcat or something. Um, you're going to connect to all those different ports that you've given in the order that you've given them. Yeah, and then and only then will the server set up a basically set up a firewall rule or a, a, a host allow rule that opens the SSH port to your IP. Um, so Only basically you're knocking. So like you, you, you may come in and say, I'm going to hit port 25, 27, 23 and two. Yeah. Um, and then it says, okay, cool. It's you open port 22 and then yeah, you can get so it. Think about this as like, you know, you've seen the old timey movies where you're trying to get into the secret password, the secret passage, and there's someone at the door and you have to make a special knock on the door, which is essentially like a password. You know, you go like, and then they'll let you in. Well, same concept, right? It's, it's knock ports, you know, that's how you'd call it. So you, you perform a right. knock, which is I've connected to port eight, port five, port 82, port three. Now you've opened port 22, I can connect to port 22. Right. And you have to connect to them in sequence within a certain time period. Right. Right. Um, and then it opens up the port and you can get in and it acts just like SSH. So that's that's pretty neat um, stuff. I mean, I would say that if you're going to the level of implementing knock ports and that your users are okay with that, 
they'll probably be okay with a VPN. Yeah, I mean, this is this is you know this is you have a server on the internet. It is yours. You're the only one that uses it, etc. Yeah, um, right. And there are uh, there are SSH clients that that have knock capabilities built in, which yeah. I, I thought was yeah. Um, so you can go in and say, here's my here's the order for the knock ports. And it will automatically do the knock and then make the SSH connection. Does, uh, which is does the normal open SSH client have it? Do you know? Uh, I'm I don't just curious. believe so. Um, I'd have to look. Um, I I, I've see, seen it. I've never I've never used it, but I've seen it. I could see setting up like a shell script that replaces, you know, instead of typing SSH server, you know, user at server name, you'd type like knock user at server name and it would do the knock and then connect. That wouldn't be that hard with Netcat or something. Yeah, I think uh, I'm looking now. I think uh, knock the actual knock D may have a way to to do this, but you run it before you run whatever you're trying to connect with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and knock D, uh, I guess, can also you can also do a a knock to open, knock to close type thing. Um, you know, cool. it, it, it sort of depends on how you can lock the door you, uh, when you leave. Yep. That's neat. Yep, yep. So, All right, so you said two things, and that was like, one. What was the other? Yep. So the other one is two-factor. Right. Um, we, we didn't, we didn't I, I, I hinted at it, but we didn't cover it. Um, SSH keys are not two-factor. They're not, period. End of right. story. There's no argument here. It's not two-factor. Some people will claim that they are, but I agree. They're not. Right. Um, so... You can have, and this this is a little bit more involved. Uh, you have to set something up uh, in usually in PAM to do this, uh, but you can set it up to use something like a YubiKey, um, Google Authenticator. I mean, there's a bunch of different two-factor bits that you can do. There you go, YubiKey, um, and basically you log into SSH. Uh, your key will be used. Your your uh, SSH key will be used as as the password um, because. Again, not two-factor because the password that you have on your SSH key to unlock it is not a factor because it is not a factor being used to log into the server. Right. Uh, and then once you get past the initial, like, hey, your key works, it'll pop up and say, what's your two-factor code? Um, whether it's an RSA token or a, a TOTP client or, you know, you plug in your YubiKey and touch it, whatever. Right. Um, and that, that adds that second factor. And... Uh, interestingly enough, two-factor is uh, a, a well. Assuming you're using something that's not like SMS-based, that's easy to intercept. Um, two-factor is arguably strong enough to be just your password. Um, it makes it a lot better. So if you have a weak password, adding a second factor turns it into a an account that is is nigh impossible to break into. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously I wouldn't recommend this, but you could you could essentially give your password to an attacker and don't give them your second factor. They still can't get in. Right. Unless they find some way to compromise the second factor. Uh, which right. is possible. You know, I've I've right. seen people that's, that's you know, idea, circumventing right? like, Google's two factor and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's that's a lot harder. It's certainly not right. as easy as phishing someone's password, you know. Uh, before two-factor, all I had to do was say, 
uh, I'm with your insurance company, and I need your password or your bank or whatever, and I need your password to do such and such because I'm I'm totally the support people, and we need to reset your password. And then you give them your password, and then they've owned you because they can just log right into your bank and do your thing, do the thing. And then God forbid if you've if you've reused that password elsewhere and they know other places you've got accounts because they just walk right into those too. Second factor mitigates that in most cases. Um, I, I, I never deal with absolutes in this case, um, but uh, in most cases, two-factor will mitigate the fact that you've been sloppy with your password. Yeah. By the so, way, don't give your password out. Don't ever. give your password to people. Absolutely I don't not. Care who it is. Uh, president of your company, God himself yes. can come down to earth. Nobody password well god would already know your password right which means if he's asking for your password because god. what does god need with a starship no yes okay <laughs> so anyway um you don't question the almighty all right um that leads us actually pretty well into the last thing that i had in my article anyway which is rotation in general. I, I covered SSH key rotation. We've already talked about that, though. Um, we talked about MFA, um, but password policy and password rotation. I know this is a sore spot for many people. You included, Jason. Um, yes. So I, in the article, I, I, I made it a point to cover the fact that password policy and rotation... There are many people, including NIST, who believe that password policy, like complex password policy, like eight characters of randomly generated crap, or give me give me letters, numbers, and symbols, and eight characters is fine. Um, that combined with arbitrary password rotation leads people to bad password habits. You can argue with me all you want. It is true. I think it's true. I've seen it. I've done it myself. Okay. You oh know? yeah, absolutely. Like, I just need to log into my workstation, and the freaking sysadmin is forcing me to change my password. Okay, I'll just add two numbers to the end. Okay, I'm done. Oh, that wasn't good enough. Um, I'll change it to winter 2018. <laughs> right. Yeah, we had a, I had to deal with an AS400, where the password rotation policy was once every. It was it was something less than 30 days, and I remembered oh. the last like six or eight passwords. That's ridiculous. So guess what I had. I had password one through password you had, nine. You had nine passwords you rotated through. Yeah, and I would just rotate them. And that's terrible. It's terrible password hygiene, and you should know better, right? So if, I, I, if right. someone, yeah, I mean, if someone was... who should know better can't be bothered with it because it's ridiculous, then, I mean, how do you expect the average user to deal with that? Now, I will say this, right. a, and this is a caveat I covered in the article. If you have a reasonable password policy, reasonable rotation policy, you know, like history, and a reasonable time limit for such things, I do think that highly privileged administrators like myself or like you might do okay with a password policy that forces rotation simply because they understand why they're doing it. They understand how they should be setting the password. I still think right. that a timed rotation is a little silly unless you know or think there was a compromise. So, agreed. Um, if you're in a very high privileged position where you can do a lot of damage, password rotation is okay within reason. I'm talking, you know, six months, 
rotation. Yeah, not 30 um, days. They, but but the password policy needs to be the pass like it should be like a six month rotation. But you have to have something that says your password must be like 15 characters, 20 characters, right? Get rid of the you know you have to have symbols and numbers and a lot of other crap. Just yeah, make it long. Go to um, a, go to a passphrase, and that's that's what right. NIST's uh, recent change. I think 2018 is when they changed right. those policies or changed those right. suggestions. And for, for folks like us, like I use a password manager. I yeah. Every system I'm in, my goal is to find out what length password it will accept, and I choose the longest password. Right. And my my passwords are garbage. Yeah. You can't remember these things. That's no. why I have a password manager. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I I randomly generate minimum 32 character passwords through LastPass. Right. They're stored in LastPass, and I, I don't even know what they are. Like, I've actually had trouble getting into services of my own because I couldn't get the LastPass for some reason. I didn't have my phone with me, or my second factor wasn't in my pocket. Yep. That sort of thing, right? right. It's like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to do it later. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, w- I would agree. And in cases where it's a password you need to remember, like, say, the login for your laptop. Like, that's a thing that it's not easy to integrate your your, your password manager with. I always set that to a phrase, um, you know, a sentence, including spaces. Sometimes I do character substitutions. I include punctuation, and that's good enough because that's going to be really hard to crack and really hard to guess. You seem distracted by something. <laughs> uh, weirdness on my computer um, that I caused. <laughs> After tonight, I, I wouldn't expect it. Guys, we, yeah, we went no. through quite um, a bit just yeah. to get video and whatnot working for this call. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I went to do something and hit the wrong button. Um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, password in in general, um, strength wise, what I have found um, in the various systems is e- even for non-administrators, if you have a password policy that requires a longer password. So my my policies when I have to implement them, I try to push for at least fifteen characters. Um, I try not I mean, some systems don't allow you to do this but i try not to put restrictions on what characters you can use mm-hmm. so i want 15 characters if you want to put 15 characters of the letter a i mean that's dumb but i guess you can do that um but i want to be able to say you have 15 characters of a password make it something that's memorable because now when you're dealing with 15 characters people are going to be like oh my god i, I can't remember you know, like they're going to think of a, almost naturally start thinking of phrases. You have a phrase. Well, I mean, you, you go, that's great. You touch on an interesting point. What they've been trained to think is that they need a 15 character random password and they're going to have to remember it. Right. And then right. either you tell them or they realize, no, wait, with that long of a password, I can type the first sentence of my favorite book. And then you've got a password or passphrase which right. is hard to guess and hard to crack. Right. And and as a developer, you should be putting hints on there that say 15 characters is the minimum. Use whatever words, phrases, whatever. Right. We recommend using a phrase. Um, you know, like uh, the XKCD, uh, horse battery correct. staple. Correct, horse battery staple. Yep, that's it. This is and, a perfect example because that's like, I don't know, eight years ago and we all, we all remember it. <laughs> Right, right. Now, don't use that password. Everybody remembers it. It's in all the dictionaries at this point. But yes, that's yes. the idea. Think of four random words, string them together, 
put spaces or dashes or exclamation right. points or you know whatever you want to use as a delimiter and you've got a long strong password that arguably is not going to be cracked very easily indeed so yeah that's our thoughts on password policies um i i i would not i don't think i would ever suggest a password rotation policy unless i suspected compromise that's the only real caveat there. Now, I will say that um, I've been in a situation where it felt like a lot of our passwords had been, had been breached, but we didn't have any proof of that. You were there. It was while well, the two of us were at the college. We were having, we were having uh, uh, accounts, email accounts, breached like two, three times a day. And it was quite frustrating. And I started wondering... Has some password database been leaked that we don't know about? And because of that, these passwords are just like, oh, this one got locked out. I'll move to the next one. Because that's really what it felt like. Um, I guess you could argue that in that case, I thought there was a breach, right? So that's a valid reason to force uh, password expiry. But even then, I couldn't get management to buy in. But whatever, that's neither here nor there. Um, so anyway... Password rotation would fix that scenario where you don't know that your passwords have been leaked in some way and people are now using them. Um, but that may not be enough to say, yes, you should definitely be doing password rotation. Right? So. You seem feverishly trying to fix something on your machine again. <laughs> no, something else. Uh, yeah, I mean, so... So password rotation is one of those things that I would use with uh, uh, kid gloves. Um, yeah. If you don't think you're going to need it, don't implement it because it goes wrong quickly. Yeah. You, and, and honestly, you're just going to annoy people. It really is. It's, it's just annoying. And I, I get people are sometimes people are okay with being annoyed in the in the sake of for the sake of security, but most people aren't. They're just going to complain. Oh, that those IT people. You know how many times have you heard that? Right. Uh, too many. Too many. Too too many. All right. So that covers everything that I put in my article. It covers everything I could think of to lock down SSH. There are probably a lot more crazy situations where you could get yourself, uh, you know, crazily secured on OpenSSH. Uh, the one point I do want to make is that out of the box, if you just install, in in my case, my experience is with Red Hat and CentOS systems. If you just install an OS. Let OpenSSH come out of the box with whatever the defaults are and use a decently secure password. You're actually pretty safe. Even if you left SSH open to the world, right? So don't think that we're suggesting that OpenSSH is a thing that is horribly insecure out of the box. It's pretty good. These suggestions are just to make it even better. So take it for what it is. Right. All right. And with that, I think we are done for the night. You have any final thoughts on OpenSSH or SSH in general? Uh, there's a lot more functionality in there that oh, a ton. you may not necessarily want to have turned on, such as uh, uh, port forwarding or key mm -hmm. forwarding. Um, so just you know, some of that stuff is on by default. Be careful. Yeah, and that stuff is really useful. It's useful for administrators. So be careful turning it off because you may have someone that wants to be able to use it. Uh, however, it's really, really useful for attackers. Yes. So 
keep that in mind if you turn that stuff on. Most of our systems have it on because we use it for certain things, but um, there's probably a large number of our systems that we wouldn't need things like key forwarding and uh, port forwarding that we could probably turn it off and not care, not even notice. Yeah, apparently, um, apparently key forwarding is is very dangerous. Um, yeah, it puts it puts your uh, unlocked SSH keys in memory, and an attacker can theoretically get them. Um, there's a I don't remember where I read it. There was a an article or a warning or something about that. So that that one can be particularly dangerous. You have to have a foothold on the machine to be able to. Yeah, to I mean it. It must. That, but. It must be it must be forwarding that key into memory on the machine you're connecting to. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to connect to the next machine, right? So it's right. got to be in the SSH agent on that machine, right? So, so yeah, I know it's it's tempting um, to alias your SSH command so that it forwards your key, but uh, that's probably a bad idea, right? Yeah, in general. Um there's again, there's uses for it. Um, I tend not to doing that to not to do that only because like if I was doing that, uh, the reason would be because I'm moving I'm, I'm going from my machine to a jump server yeah. and I'm trying to forward on to additional machines mm-hmm. and and you know I, I use VPNs for this these days um, because the the idea of there's there's two ways to do it. One is you can forward your keys. The other one is you have to you have to put the key locally on the machine. Now, arguably, I would, putting the the key locally on the machine, even if it's temporary, um, can be more secure because it requires the password. Where to get it, and you know, could use yeah, right. The password needs to be. Um, so the the key forwarding thing is dangerous because when you have key forwarding turn on, it's not forwarding the keys that you need to get to the next server, it's forwarding every key you have that's in memory. Yeah. So, so that's where the sort of dangerous part comes in. Um, so I, that, that, in that aspect, I like VPN servers better because then I can go through that. Um, right. the other, I mean, when I was one of the, one of the security, uh, people that I worked with, the companies that I worked with wanted us to set up a jump server. Uh, they called it a bastion server. Um, yes, I've so that, that it, term. Um, it's a jump and, jump host, you know, bastion host. Right. Yeah, what, same what, thing. Right. And my question was, okay, so that's how we get to it from the outside world. Yes. Okay. So, how do we get to the in, the inside machines? We we'll use different keys. Okay. Where are those keys stored? Oh, you put them in the bastion server. <laughs> I said, ah, okay. We're done talking now because you're. Well, I'm not listening to anything else you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, nice. um, key forwarding is useful if you know you can keep it secure. Um, just be careful. And port forwarding is also equally dangerous because you can forward both local and remote ports. And if you don't keep an eye on what you're doing, you could accidentally bypass firewalls. Yeah, or bad guys could intentionally bypass firewalls. Right. Right. All right, so I think that covers it. Any final, final thoughts? Uh, SSH is awesome. Uh, SSH is awesome. SSH is awesome and versatile and needs to be treated like any sufficiently awesome and versatile tool. <laughs> right? You don't let your kids yep, play yep, with yep. you don't let your kid your kids play with hatchets, even though hatchets are awesome, right? My kid plays with SSH all the time, so Yeah. Uh, your your kid's different. 
Oh, okay. All right. So I think that's it for tonight. Um, thanks to any of you who have decided to watch us with our first uh, attempt into using streaming with OBS on YouTube tonight. I don't know that we got anybody in the chat, so I don't know that anybody was watching, but that's okay. Next time, we're going to record on a Wednesday like normal, and uh, hopefully we'll have some more folks chatting, and we'll have gained a little more experience with OBS, and that'll be cool. Um, if you want to watch us live, you can do so via YouTube, youtube.com slash podcast. Uh, you can also join our Slack workspace if you want to chat with us or give us feedback or just interact with the community that we're building there. Uh, ironsysadmin.com slash slack will get you to an invite link. You can check us out on the socials, Facebook and Twitter. Just look up Iron Sysadmin. Uh, you can support us via Patreon if you want to help us out monetarily. Patreon.com slash ironsysadmin. And I think that's it for tonight. Did I miss anything? I don't think I missed anything. Uh, leave comments. Leave, yeah. leave reviews. Yes. The more feedback we get thoughts. from folks, the more we know what you guys want. Uh, if you want to look up me yeah. on Twitter, I'm at Gangriff. Jason, you want to share your handle? Yep. I'm at Xenophage. Um, and you can see the I've been writing blog posts intermittently at blog.godshell.com. Yep. And uh, you should probably tell them where you're SSH blog post is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that'll be included in the show notes. Um, uh, Jason has done a great job of not telling anybody how to spell his Twitter handle, but I'm going to give you guys a hint. This entire broadcast on YouTube has it spelled right at the bottom of his picture. (laughs) So, see that? Fail. Anyway... Thanks for watching, folks. Um, yeah, if you want to check out my blog, it's underground.org, U-N-D-R, ground.org. I've been on a bit of a, uh, a blogging spree lately. I've got a couple articles that are in the pipeline for Enable Sysadmin. Once they're published there, I'll probably be posting them on my blog as well. A couple cool things for Sysadmin Appreciation Day. I did a nice piece on how to appreciate your systems and network people because they need appreciation as well. Um, and another thing where I recanted my... Uh, uh, the day the rev manager went away, which you guys might remember that from a previous episode from about a year ago. Don't be like Nate. Don't be like Nate. I included that in the thing. I actually, I titled it, uh, the day the rev manager went away, how to lose 10 pounds through stress, anxiety, and lack of sleep. (laughs) So anyway, I think we're gonna call it a night. Thank you guys for watching. Thanks for listening. And we will catch you in roughly two weeks. Not all.